Welcome to the Denver Community Church Teaching Podcast. We're so glad that you're joining us today from wherever you are. Whether you attend one of our Denver locations or listen online, our hope is to explore and participate in the life of Jesus so that we can be a healing presence in our world. As you listen to this teaching, allow it to begin a conversation between you and God, you and the Bible, and you and your community. If you have any questions about DCC or this teaching, you can email us at info at And if you'd like to financially support our community and beyond as we set aside 20% of every dollar given to support our partners locally and around the globe, you can text the words Denver Church to 77977. That's Denver Church to 77977. Thank you for joining us today. Morning, friends. How are we? Good. Uh, thrilled to have you guys here with us this morning. I'm really excited. We have one of our good friends here with us this morning. Uh, I'm here to introduce our friend Paula, who's going to be speaking this morning. As you know, we value here at DCC being able to hear from, to learn with and from other voices, friends who we journey with. And uh, so Paula, many of you guys have heard speak before, and she's been with us, and we're thrilled to have her here again this morning. So will you please help me welcome our friend Paula? So here's the text that I've been assigned this morning, the third chapter of Luke, beginning with verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Negei, the son of Math, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Risa, the son of Jerobubble, the son of Shealtil, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adi, the son of Kosum, the son of Elmadim, the son of Ur. That's the passage that I was assigned to speak on today. So I don't know where Michael is, but Michael, wherever you are, what did I ever do to you that you would assign me that passage of Scripture? You're not going to believe this, but dozens of books have been written about that passage of Scripture. Who would read those books? Turns out a lot of people because that's Luke's genealogy of Jesus from David until the time of Joseph. Matthew also has a genealogy. Luke's includes 42 generations. Matthew's includes only 27 generations. And the two genealogies don't have any of the same people. And for a lot of folks, this is a problem. For the first 1,500 years or so of Christianity, Christianity was focused on, guess what? The person of Jesus. Marvelous, wonderful. But over the last 500 years or so, there's been a significant shift, and now much of the Christian world focuses, instead of on Jesus, focuses on the book about Jesus, focuses on the Bible as a book of facts. And there is, in fact, an entire school of thought that says we must worship the Bible as a book of facts and in its original autographs, in its first copies, it must be without error in any way, which then would create a problem. 
when Luke has one genealogy that has 42 generations and Matthew has a genealogy with 27 generations and none of the names are the same. Hence, all of those books I was talking about. Well, some of the differences in the two can be explained by who they were writing to. Matthew was writing to a Jewish population. For them, ancestry always came through the father, even if it was an adoptive father. Luke was bold in this time and age. He does not trace the lineage of Jesus through Joseph. He traces it through Mary. Hence the difference in the names, even though it doesn't exactly explain the difference in the numbers of generations. Because he wants to show the physical humanity of Jesus. He wants to show that Jesus was born of a woman through a birth canal. That Jesus was body, blood, bones, sinew, water. That Jesus was, in fact, human. And he goes on in his gospel to show us that Jesus is the truth that will set us free. Now, we have a lot of myths in our society, a lot of myths in our species. And one of the myths is that we love the truth more than we love belonging, that more than anything else, we care deeply about the truth of things. But that is, in fact, a myth, because we as humans have always cared more about belonging than we care about the truth. For instance, I'm a pastoral counselor. That's what my doctorate is in. And people who've come to me for counseling will come to grips with the fact that they've been abused by the patriarch of the family. And now they're ready to confront their father about the abuse they experienced. And they believe that the family's going to back them up in that. They will say to me, I know that when I confront my perpetrator, everybody else in the family is aware of exactly what happened. And they'll back me up. And I have to be the one to tell them, that's probably not so, because in my experience, it's almost never so. The courageous person confronts the, accuser, the, the abuser, and the rest of the family leaves them twisting in the wind. And they discover painfully that most of the members of that family are more interested in belonging to that family system, broken as it is, than they are in speaking up for the truth. As a species, we believe, we want to believe that we believe in the truth more than belonging, but the truth is we've always cared more about belonging than we have about the truth. It takes a courageous person to focus more on the truth. Here's another myth we tell ourselves, that we want to be free. It's on the license plates in the state of New Hampshire, live free or die. You remember the iconic phrase from the movie Braveheart? They may take away our lives, but they will never take away our freedom. So we have this myth that more than anything else, we want to be free. And the truth is, we give away our freedom all the time. There are three moral foundations for the human species. Just three. Three moral foundations since the beginning of time. Jonathan Haidt, in his marvelous book, The Righteous Mind, talks about the three. By the way, he has a new book out, and it's been excerpted, excerpted this month in The Atlantic magazine. The article this month is How Social Media Has Made America Stupid. So I cannot wait to read the entire book. But in his book, The Righteous Mind, 
He talks about the three moral foundations that exist for our species. Now, the first and oldest moral foundation is that there is no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. This is, in fact, the oldest moral foundation, the oldest moral standard of our species, and it caused us to develop and thrive as a species. As a species, we never really took off as long as we were focused on blood kin. We did not take off until we moved from blood kin to the level of tribe, to the level of community. And that is the moral standard of one-third of the people in the history of mankind, that there's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. Now note, in doing so, you are willingly giving away your freedom to the elders of the tribe. So freedom does not matter as much to you as belonging. You're willing to give up your freedoms because there's no greater moral good than to protect the integrity of the tribe. There's a second moral standard for our species, that there's no greater moral good than to obey the teachings of the gods. Now, this is, in fact, the moral standard of all forms of fundamentalism, particularly the fundamentalist forms of the three desert religions. The three desert religions, the three Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, all began in the desert. And as such, they began as religions of scarcity because they began in the desert. There's not enough to go around. You've got to take care of me and mine. Now, you contrast that with, let's say, Native American religions or Pacific Islander religions. There's a massive difference. The others are religions of abundance. But the desert religions began as religions of scarcity. There's them and there's us, and we'll only take care of us. Now, fortunately, in their more generous forms, all three of the desert religions have become religions of abundance. But in their fundamentalist forms, they remain religions of scarcity. It's Islam in the Middle East. It's fundamentalist Christianity in the United States. And there's no greater moral good for those folks than to obey the teachings of the gods, which, note again, is giving away your freedom. Now you're giving away your freedom to the religious authorities who will tell you how to live so that you might, in fact, be able to go to heaven. Now these are two of the three moral standards of our species. The third moral standard we know well. The third moral standard is that there is no greater moral good than the freedom of the individual. That there's no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. This is the moral standard of the entire Western world. It's the moral standard of Western Europe, of Scandinavia, of the secular United States, of parts of Asia, of Australia, New Zealand. The moral standard that says there is no greater moral good than to protect the freedom of the individual. Now, interestingly, this is the least common of the three moral standards and the only one that does not have us giving away our freedom. And from whence does this third moral standard come? It comes from the teachings of Jesus, who, like the song said, teaches us, if you follow me, you will be free indeed. For he, in fact, is the truth. So when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he was angry. 
because Galatia, what now is the country of Turkey, was split in two. The southern half of Galatia was made up primarily of Jewish Christians who'd been a part of the Roman Empire for a long time. The northern half of Galatia was made up of Celtic Christians. Now, the Celtic people had come from Central Europe. They had pretty much covered all of Europe down to as far as about halfway through Galatia. The Romans hated the Celts was their competition. They considered them to be barbarians, and they drove the Celtic people out of all of Europe except for the British Isles, for Celtic culture still reigns to this very day. And one of the major markers of the Celtic people was a great love and desire for freedom. Hence that great line of William Wallace, they'll take away our lives, but they will never take away our freedom. It is at the heart of Celtic Christianity. It's why churches like this are very focused on Celtic Christianity because it's based in the teachings of Jesus that we are free. So when Paul wrote to the church at Galatia, he's saying it's not rules and regulations, but the Jewish Christians are telling you it's about the fact that we are free in Christ. Don't give away that freedom. We are, in fact, free in Christ, but the truth is we're willing to give away our freedom because freedom is hard. Freedom's difficult. Freedom is very hard work. No question about it. It is difficult to be free. Human beings are inherently spiritual. By nature, we are spiritual, whether we want to admit it or not. And James Fowler has written a book called Stages of Faith, in which he talks about the six different stages of human spirituality. The first two stages of human spirituality are stages of childhood. They are magical spirituality, where our parents have magical powers. And once we realize our parents don't have magical powers, we now give magical powers over to superheroes who have the magical powers. But then by the time we get to the teen years, we've given up the first two stages of spiritual development, and we've moved on to the third stage, which is conventional spirituality, where we give away our freedom to the spiritual authorities. And a lot of us are quite comfortable there. Just tell us what I need to do, how I need to live. Life here is hard. I'd rather have guardrails around it. So just tell me how to live so I can get to heaven. That's pretty much all I need. This is stage three of spiritual development. And a lot of folks spend their lives in stage three of spiritual development because they don't want to go to stage four. Because stage four is literally hell. <laughs> That's how Dante defined it in the Divine Comedy as hell. At the beginning of the Commedia, he says, in the middle of the road of my life, I awoke in a dark wood where the true way was wholly lost. Welcome to stage four of spiritual development. You are completely and utterly lost. Shakespeare had Macbeth talking about it. Life is but a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. This is stage four of spiritual development. Delightful, don't you think? John of the Cross called it the dark night of the soul. Joseph Campbell called it the road of trials on the hero's journey. 
And then it gets worse. You find yourself in the deep, dark cave on the hero's journey where the true way is completely and utterly lost. You have no idea what direction in which to move and you discover it's okay. It's all right. Because lost, well, lost is a place too. And sometimes you have to spend some time in the place called lost. There are lessons you can learn in the place called lost. You can't learn any other way. There's a certain wisdom that comes from the place called lost. You might have to spend days, weeks, months, years in the place called lost, in the dark night of the soul. This is stage four of spiritual development. So I've had the very good fortune of doing four, count them, four TED Talks, and now I work with a couple of TED organizations working with their speakers, both here at TEDx Mile High in Denver, where I help prepare our speakers to speak, but I also serve as a speaker's ambassador for TED, for the big TED and their main event in Vancouver. So I was in Vancouver three weeks ago working with TED speakers, and one of the things about TED as an organization is there are not very many people within the organization who are inherently speakers. Spiritual. So word gets around that there is in fact a pastor who is one of the speaker's ambassadors, which means you work with the speakers to prepare them for speaking at TED, which is quite a big deal. So one of the speakers I was working with came to me and said, hey, do you know that they told us to watch your TED Talks? I said, yeah, that word has kind of gotten around. He said, so I watched your TED Talks, and in your second TED Talk, you said, and I quote... I believe in God most days of the week, except for Tuesdays and Thursdays, and any day that I'm on the New Jersey Turnpike. <laughs> he said, it, you said that. I said, right. He said, you're a pastor and you said that. I said, yes, have you ever driven on the New Jersey Turnpike? <laughs> I said, look around you. Look around you. It's a terrifying world out there. How could you not question the existence of God? Is anybody in charge? This is stage four of spiritual development. It is a stage of disenchantment. It's a stage of disillusionment. It's the point where you come to question every single thing you were ever taught in the religion in which you were raised, and you think to yourself, my goodness, was any of it true? This is the point where you realize that questioning everything is the beginning of wisdom. Questioning everything is the beginning of wisdom. This is where you discover the truth will set you free, but oh, it is guaranteed to make you miserable first. And a lot of people can't handle it. So generally, when they get into stage four of spiritual development, a lot of folks just go back to stage three. No thanks. I'll just go back to rules and regulations defining my religious life. Now, of course, stage three believers love this because they welcome the people back and they put them up and they have them give testimonies about how they came to see the error of their ways, these poor backsliders, and then came back to God when the truth is... They just had a failure of nerve, a failure of courage to remain in the dark night of the soul, to remain in that place called lost. And so they revert to stage three. 
there are a lot of other people who just give up on their spirituality. They get to this stage of disenchantment or disillusionment and then just decide they're not going to pay attention to their spirituality anymore and it gets truncated in their lives and they live lives without awareness that we're spiritual beings. But if you're willing to stick with the journey through the dark night of the soul, eventually you get to stage five. Now stage five is interesting because for most of us, when we get to stage five, it's the re-enchantment of what had become a disenchanted faith. And most of us end up returning to the faith in which we were raised. We end up returning to the religion that nurtured us as children. But we return with a much deeper, a much broader, a much more mysterious, and a much more mystical faith. That's the kind of church you're in. It's the kind of church I pastor, Left Hand Church in Longmont, Colorado. It's a place where people who are in stage four and coming into stage five can be quite comfortable because we're quite specifically a Christian church. It's all about Jesus. We are focused on Jesus, on living like Jesus. This is, in fact, the focal point of our faith, but it's not a stage three rules and regulations faith. It's a broader, it's a deeper faith. It's a bigger tent. We welcome others in to join us as long as you understand. As we search for meaning together, we're going to be focused on the person of Jesus. That's what happens in stage five. You end up with a broader, deeper, more mystical, more mysterious faith. You find you have fewer friends, but deeper friendships. You find you no longer look outside yourself for your sense of self-worth, but you look deep inside your own soul. And you finally are able to look straight in the eye of your abiding shadows, those parts of your personality you're not likely to ever get rid of. The ones that have been with you forever, that continue to be with you, that you realize are going to cause people grief your entire life because it's just the way you are and you finally have come to accept that reality about yourself. You try to keep those weaknesses, those flaws under wraps as often as possible to do as little damage as possible, but you've learned to forgive yourself and you no longer judge others. You no longer judge others because you realize they too have their shadow sides. And so you're more curious about why they have the shadows they have, not in judging them for those shadows. It's a deeper, broader, richer faith. And then there's a handful of people who get to stage six. I am not one of them. <laughs> people like Gandhi or Mother Teresa or uh, one of my favorite the Secretary General of the United Nations in the 1950s, Dag Hammarskjöld, who said shortly before his untimely death, night is drawing nigh. For all that has been, thanks. For all that shall be, yes. You know you've reached stage six when you can say for all that has been, thanks. For all that shall be, yes. Jesus gives clear instruction on how to get from stage three to stage five. He did it with the disciples. It's the beginning of the 14th chapter of the Gospel of John. The disciples are quite sure that Jesus is going to be the new political king of Israel, and he's going to give them power in this new position. They're stuck in stage three. 
And Jesus has been trying desperately to get them into stage four, let alone stage five. And so he finally gives them news they don't really want to hear. He says, in my father's house are many rooms. If it was not so, I would have told you. And I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again. That where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. The truth is they had no idea what Jesus is talking about. They were able to figure out that he's saying he's leaving and not coming back. And Thomas, now desperately, horribly entering stage four, says, wait, you say that we know the way? We don't know the way? You're leaving? You're coming back? In, you know, he's talking about coming back in the form of the Holy Spirit. They don't really even know what that is yet. Jesus says, Thomas, Thomas, I am the way, the truth, the life. This isn't complicated. Just follow me. Do what I do. Live like I live. That's it. I am the truth that will set you free. Jesus says the same thing later, only later he doesn't use words. He's been taken away by the authorities. They've put him on trial. They have condemned him to death, but the Jewish authorities don't have the right to kill someone. And so they take him to the Roman governor, Pilate, who's not a happy man. I mean, he always thought that his political patronage might give him one of the really cool ambassadorships to one of the really neat nations. Instead, he is stuck in Palestine where none of the people of Israel can get along with each other, and they keep parading to him Messiah after Messiah after Messiah, wanting him to take care of it, and here they come with another one, and he says, take care of it yourself. And they say, oh no, but this one's really bad. He's going to have to be killed, and well, you haven't given us the right to kill anyone, you're going to have to take care of it. So he says, fine, bring him into the palace. And he brings Jesus into his palace. And this encounter takes place, John 18. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? I mean, how many have been here? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked? Or did others talk to you about me? You can see Pilate, oh great, now I got a sarcastic one. <laughs> Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. It was your people, your chief priests who handed you over to me. What is it you've done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. Hmm. Hmm. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, well, you're right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Pilate, dismissively, sarcastically, says, what is truth? And Jesus doesn't answer. He just stands there. And he stands there. And he stands there. Pilate gets so uncomfortable, he leaves, goes out 
to speak to the crowd, Jesus is still standing there. He doesn't have to answer the question with words. The truth is standing there. And you know good and well, everybody else in that room remembered the last time Jesus had just stood there. It wasn't that much earlier. It was another time the religious authorities were concerned about. It's a time the Roman authorities were concerned about. It was a huge press conference. It was the last time Jesus ever spoke to a big giant crowd. And they asked him all kinds of hard questions and the final question was asked. It was the last public question Jesus was ever asked. The last question he was asked was, which of the laws is the greatest? Now, there were 613 of them. Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and love your neighbor as your own self. There was no surprise in his answer. It's exactly what they would have expected. They actually began their services quoting those laws. But then he said something else. He said, On this are all the law and the prophets based. Now, they'd spent their entire lives studying these 613 laws. That wasn't enough for them. They had written literally thousands more. And Jesus comes along and says, just the opposite. He says, not about 613 laws. It's not about behaving appropriately, so maybe God won't be angry with you. It's not about any of that. It's about loving God, loving your neighbor, and loving yourself. It's about loving God, the God who burst on the scene 14 billion years ago in all of God's complexity, mystery, ever-expansiveness, rooted in relationship, grounded in love, and yes, I just explained the Big Bang and so much more. It's loving that God. It's loving your neighbor, every single one of them, particularly the ones that don't look like you. And it's the hardest of all, loving yourself. And sometimes we're pretty unlovely. And what happens? There's dead silence. This is a press conference. They had hundreds of questions for Jesus. And now there's dead silence and Jesus is just This is the truth in blood and muscle and sinew and bone come through the birth canal of a woman. This is truth. To love God, love neighbor, love self. And Matthew tells us from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. It was that simple. What does it mean to follow God? It means loving God, loving your neighbor, loving yourself. It's simple. Nobody said it was easy. It makes me think of the poem of Mary Oliver, maybe. 
Sweet Jesus, talking his melancholy madness, stood up in the boat and the sea lay down silky and sorry. So everybody lived that day. But you know how it is when something different crosses the threshold. The uncles mutter together. The women walk away. The young brother begins to sharpen his knife. Nobody knows what the soul is. It comes and goes like the wind over the water. Sometimes for days you don't think of it. Maybe after the storm, after the multitude was fed, one or two of them felt the soul slip forth like a tremor of pure sunlight before exhaustion that wants to swallow everything, gripped their bones and then left them, miserable, sleepy as they are now, forgetting how the wind tore at the sails before he rose and spoke to it, tender, luminous, demanding, as he always was as he always is, a thousand times more frightening than the killer sea. God, thank you for making it easy. We like easy, easy's good. But oh, it's also the hardest thing we'll ever do. To love you in all of your complexity and mystery and ever-expansiveness rooted in relationship, grounded in love, to love you, to love our neighbor, oh, yeah, particularly that neighbor. And oh God, the hardest of all, to love ourselves. It's simple, but oh, it's so hard. Give us courage to just trust the journey to follow the truth. To recognize that when we are free in you, we are free indeed. For this we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.